We started this series weeks ago because I felt it so important to remind all of us that as Christians, our citizenry is in the kingdom of heaven first and foremost, before anything else. Our identity as a person, as a Christian, should begin with God. Knowing who we are and how we should conduct ourselves here on this earth, it all begins with Jesus Christ. And I felt it important for us to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe Jesus takes those moments to introduce the kingdom of heaven and the manner in which we are to conduct ourselves as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then we moved into chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, where he lists one occasion after another where Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to something to help his hearers relate to that in which he is bringing in, he's inaugurating, he's uh, commencing to go throughout the entire world. Now this was very important because the Jewish people had a very different idea of what was going to occur after their Messiah came. They believed that he was going to take the throne there in Jerusalem, there within the temple that he was going to lead them militarily to overcome their adversaries, as he did in the Old Testament in many occasions. That he was going to return Israel to the zenith of their existence as a nation. And that he was going to once again place them in a position of prominence amongst the world. But when Jesus came and people began to see and understand that that's not what he was going to do, There was great confusion in the minds of the people, including the disciples that followed him intimately. Of course, we've stated this numerous times that by Acts chapter 1, they are still asking the question, will you now return, uh, bring the kingdom to Israel? And this was on the forefront of their minds. This is what they were concerned about. It's what they had prepared for. It's what they had expected. So Jesus knew that he had to dismantle the misconceptions that had been gathered in the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people and then reestablish proper expectations of what the kingdom of heaven was going to look like here on this world in this world. And as we come to the end of this chapter chapter 13 of the gospel of Matthew he not only reminds them again of the effect of the kingdom of heaven here on this earth But he points them again to the end. He points them to the last days. He points them to his return, ultimately. Because as you and I know, from their perspective, they didn't realize that the kingdom of heaven would occupy this world for 2,000 years now. In fact, when you read the New Testament epistles, often you find glimpses within them that they anticipated his return at any moment. In fact, there was a rumor going around that John in his gospel addresses at the end of the gospel of John that John, the writer of the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the one who authored Revelation on the island of Patmos, that he, the apostle John, was not going to die before the return of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, that was incorrect. And John never 
forwarded that uh, rumor, uh, but yet it was something that was already had been established in the minds and the, the hearts of the people. They expected Jesus to return in their day. Unfortunately, now that 2,000 years have passed, it appears to me that many Christians today don't believe that Jesus could return in our lifetime. And I think that's a mistake. The Bible clearly teaches us that we should be waiting and looking for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And in the wake of that, we should be busy about His business. And so we need to understand, we don't know when He is going to return. We don't know the day or the hour. We could say for certain that we're 2,000 years closer, couldn't we? But that being said, we don't know the day or the hour. But why is it that we now, for some reason, believe that it couldn't happen in our lifetime. For example, for the rapture of the church to occur, there are no prophecies left yet to be fulfilled. It could happen tomorrow. I personally wouldn't mind Tuesday looking at the weather out forecast for that day. But that, you know, is exactly the direction in which he points them to as he concludes with his last parable, the parable of the dragnet. And we pick it up in verse 47 of Matthew chapter 13. Let's read it together. And we'll read through to verse 52. Jesus speaking to his disciples, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age that the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things. And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And they said to them, and I'm sorry, he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, things new and old. The question posed to the disciples in verse 51 is one that I pose to you today. Do you understand? Jesus is all about us getting it. Excuse me. (laughs) 52 and I just hit puberty. Uh, uh, God wants us to understand His Word. When you sit down to read God's Word, understand that it is our Father's desire that you understand it. It isn't meant to be a mystery to you. It isn't meant to be concealed from you. He has given us the Holy Spirit that we may know and interpret properly the Word of God as He leads us into all truth. Many are discouraged from reading the Word of God and anything I can do to remove those hurdles from you, I so want to do. I believe now more than ever, we as Christians need to be grounded in God's Word on a daily basis. And if there's something hindering you from doing that, may I encourage you to overcome it. 
to make whatever change is necessary to allow you to do that. Because He wants us to understand. He wants us to know. He wants you and I to be able to uh, understand and see what He is doing in and amongst us each and every day. He wants you to understand how He views you through Christ. He wants you to understand Him and the nature and His character. He wants to grow with you in an intimate, personal relationship with you that is cultivated each and every day by prayer and spending time in His Word. God wants you to know Him as you are known to Him. It's a beautiful thing. And so he's asking his disciples, do you understand all that we have said? And they immediately say yes. I've learned this in the philosophy class that I teach on Tuesday at the high school students. I love them. And we'll be talking about a point that I know that I'm introducing to them for the first time. And then I'll ask them, do you all understand it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we can just move on to the next thing. I get it. Yep, that's it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. The disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And yet, Jesus gave them all that they needed to understand. In verse 52, before we get to the parable of the dragnet, we see here that Jesus now commissions and asks those who follow him, those instructed, the word instructed there in the Greek is the same word that is used for disciple, one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I was surprised to learn after all of these years that Matthew considered himself a Christian scribe, meaning that the same role that the scribes of Judaism uh, uh, took uh, under their belt is the same job that he took. And his purpose was to communicate clearly the things of Jesus Christ. That's why his gospel is so beautifully written and recorded. He... He wanted people to know who came after him. He wanted his Jewish brethren to know and to understand. Even though the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, was not established in the way that they thought it was going to be, Jesus is their Messiah. And that's why he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. It is interesting to me, though, that he also saw as part of his task showing the foundation that the Old Testament created for the New Testament to be built upon. That's what it means here about the old and the new. He saw this as a natural progression from, from, uh, from Judaism into Christianity. And it's so sad to me that so many Christians are listening to teachers that are discouraging them from reading the Old Testament. The Old Testament is rich with value for us as Christians today. Rich. There is so much that we can gain. Can you imagine not having the Psalms? Do you know how many times I've been encouraged by them personally as I go through difficult times in my life? And I think, oh, David, you're writing just to me because it's so uh, relevant and and, uh, uh, pertinent to the moment in which I'm experiencing. Or the example of the prophets. I get encouraged when I read Jeremiah. You know, and he probably would say, geez, thanks. Jeremiah, I'm calling you to be a prophet, but guess what? No one's going to listen to you. Okay, God, 
I'm there. The frustration that he experienced. Job. Job is all about a, uh, it's a book on perception. The perception that various people had upon Job's circumstances. And they were all wrong. God was doing something so much greater. It's incredible to me how rich the Old Testament is. And I think it's incredible that when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, how much of the Old Testament he actually includes within it. Showing that Christianity is the natural progression of what God started through the nation of Israel. And then he comes to the parable of the dragnet. The Gospel of Jesus Christ was not going to be reduced to a single location. Adherence to the gospel wasn't dependent on nationality any longer. Okay. It is interesting to me that Jesus begins to establish their understanding of the method in which the the kingdom of heaven was going to move and to spread. Being fishermen, they were all accustomed to the nets that were used for fishing. These nets were quite large. They could be anywhere from 750 feet in length to 1,000 feet in length, 10 feet high. The tops of the nets would be supported by flotation devices. The bottoms weighted down. And after boats went out into the Lake of Galilee, the nets would be dropped. And then they would be pulled into shore. And then everything caught within them would then be sorted out after the net came to the shore. It's an imagery that they would all be familiar with. Even if you weren't a fisherman, and Matthew wasn't, he was a tax collector. It was apparent that through this illustration, Matthew was giving what Jesus had said to let them know how the gospel was going to move throughout the world and throughout time. 2,000 years later, we've seen that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was located in the small nation of Israel 2,000 years ago, has now gone and swept across the entire world 2,000 years later. The emphasis on this parable is about the identity of those good and bad. There were certain fish that the Jewish people could not eat. If it didn't have fins or if it didn't have scales, they weren't allowed to eat it. I have no problem with that whatsoever. And as a result, they were accustomed to sorting through the fish that they could keep and market and those that they had to either destroy or throw back into the lake. And of course, then Jesus tells them that all of this type of separation will take place at the end as Jesus then will judge the world in accordance to their existence. It is interesting to me that not only did I learn that Matthew was a, considered himself a Christian uh, psychic, Christian scribe, he realized that his role was to help individuals know how it would all play out. When we study eschatology, the study of the last days, We often get so enamored with the events of eschatology that we get caught in the trees and we lose sight of the forest. This is to help us know how it's all going to play out. For you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, though it is interesting to know the events of the tribulation period, the seven-year period of time, 
the real hope for you and I is actually found in Revelation 21 and 22, isn't it? The new heavens and the new earth. That's what we look forward to. That's what we are looking to be prepared for and to enjoy for all eternity. That's really the end game for us as Christians. Eschatology is not only the study of the last days, but it could also be known as the study of events unfolding. Meaning, as the kingdom of heaven was birthed there in Israel, how was it going to unfold? How was it going to grow? How was it going to go throughout the entire world? That's what Matthew wanted his readers to understand. Now, when does this separation take place? Does Matthew give us any inkling or understanding of uh, how and when that is going to take place? He does in Matthew chapter 25. And we'll look at that in just a moment. The events of Matthew chapter 25 happen after the physical return of Jesus Christ. Prior to that physical return, there is a seven-year period of time that precedes, immediately precedes the return of Jesus Christ that we know as the Great Tribulation period. In fact, technically, It could be called the tribulation period with the great tribulation portion of it being the last three and a half years. This is established in the uh, book of Daniel and it's established in the book of Revelation. From Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation 19, the events of those seven years are outlined for us in the book for us to know what will happen during that time. But I believe that the Scriptures strongly teach that we as Christians will be removed before the uh, beginning of that seven-year period of time. Based on a verse, two verses in Thessalonians. The first verse is, number one, that we as Christians are not appointed to wrath, meaning the wrath that we were going to occur uh, for the sins that we have committed have all been dealt with and paid for through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's no point for us to go through judgment because that's what it is. That seven-year period of time is judgment, specifically the judgment of the nation of Israel. And with it, the whole world. I believe that the rapture of the church happens before that seven-year period of time where God removes us in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Here one moment, gone the next. Taken to heaven. The second reason I believe that happens before the tribulation period is due to the fact that Thessalonians also tells us that there's something restraining the rise to the public uh, attention of the Antichrist. And I believe that what is restraining him is the Holy Spirit working through the church. And so... When the church is removed, the Antichrist then has uh, his ability to rise to that place of power and prominence for those seven years to deceive the world, to uh, bring the world under a weight of judgment like never seen before. And then at the end of that seven years is when Jesus Christ returns given to us in Revelation 19. You have just been given the cliff notes of eschatology. So when do the events of Matthew chapter 5 take place? 
Well, there is an indication that there's a period of time between the return of Jesus Christ and the entering into Revelation chapter 20, which is known as the Millennial Kingdom. I believe that this event happens between the return of Jesus Christ and the entering into the Millennial Kingdom, okay? Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 25, where this separation is recorded for us. And I gave you that background because I think it is necessary to properly interpret what Jesus is saying here in our text. And we're in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all His holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate uh, them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in, or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these of my brethren, you've did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me. You cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or a naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. And then he will answer them, saying, As surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. <coughs> Excuse me. So this separation takes place. The righteous go then into the millennial kingdom, which then, of course, is then succeeded by the new heavens and the new earth. But at this point, those unrighteous who are not in Christ are separated immediately and they go on to eternal destruction. Both in Matthew 13 and in Matthew 25, Jesus clearly teaches that hell exists. And as many Christians today want to dismiss that concept, 
or simply say, no, that is just mere symbolism. It doesn't actually exist. Jesus Christ made it clear twice that it does exist and we should look to avoid it at all costs. And only can we do so through the person of Jesus Christ. This separation. So who were these people that were tended to during this explanation that Jesus gives? I believe, and I think it's well substantiated, that he is referring to those who ministered to the Jewish people when they were under the tyranny of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. I believe that what he is speaking to is that you were not ashamed to come to the people who followed me during that time of tribulation. You were not afraid to minister to the least of these people who are thrown into jail. We know that Revelation chapter 13 clearly tells us that all will be required to um, receive a mark on their forehead or on their hand. And if you refuse to receive that mark on the forehead or on the hand, you shall not be able to buy or sell. And in so doing, you will show yourself as opposed to the authority of the Antichrist and will be executed for it. However, those who do take the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the hand, salvation is no longer available to them through Christ. Scary thought. Scary, scary thought. So it will be very unpopular to follow Christ during the tribulation period. And I believe that those who were willing to risk their life to tend to those who were suffering during those moments in time proved that they were truly in Christ by doing so. It is not that these works saved them. It was an indication of their salvation in Christ that they were then willing to lay down their life and sacrifice it for their brothers and sisters in Christ who were suffering during the time of the tribulation period under the weight of tyranny of the Antichrist. And then after the return of Jesus Christ, He separates the sheep from the goats. Those who are truly His and those who are not. The Jewish people, obviously, and you find this in so many different places throughout the Old and New Testament, saw their allegiance to God fully established in their national identity. Remember when John the Baptist came and he started baptizing people? And they said, well, I don't need to be baptized. I'm a son of Abraham. And John the Baptist came back and said, any one of these stones God, we can raise up to be a son of Abraham. It didn't matter that you were nationally a Jewish person, but that your heart had been circumcised to God, not just your flesh. But when the gospel goes throughout the world, it's not going to be, again, limited to one locality, limited to one nationality. It was going to go throughout the entire world. And there were going to be many things that were done in the name of Christianity that did not reflect well upon God. The Crusades, the Inquisition, just to name a couple. There's a lot of people who carry themselves in religiosity that will stand before God, Matthew 7, 21. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. The great equalizer 
standing before the judgment seat of God. For the non-believer, that takes place in Revelation chapter 20, when the books are open and all is revealed. For us as believers, Paul says that we will stand before the Bema seat of Christ and be rewarded for all those things that we have done from motivation onto action in and through the new life in which God has given us. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day that we would be held accountable for the new life that we have been graciously given in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We as Christians in America constantly need to be reminded that Christianity isn't all about me. The foundational tenet of Christianity is found in these words. To deny thyself, take up the cross, and follow after him. This is Christianity regardless of the nation in which the populace or the person occupies. We have been blessed as Americans to have and to enjoy the freedoms that we have had for the last 200 some years. But we see those freedoms dissipating before our eyes quickly, don't we? Just this week, another church in Canada was... Uh, The police locked the front door so the people could not come in and worship due to COVID restrictions. And let us understand the way England goes, the way Europe goes, the way Canada goes, the United States follows closely behind in the same way. Unless a revival happens here in America, we are looking at the future of the church in this nation by looking to Europe and looking to Canada, and that's what's in store for us next. So we need to be prepared, right? Because if we've made the Christian faith all about us, the world that's going to be, uh, that we are going to be surrounded by going forward is not going to be attractive to us, is it? It's not going to be conducive to us. It will truly m- be the fact of us taking up our cross and denying ourselves and following after Jesus Christ. But that's the way it was from the beginning. It wasn't optional to the early church. It was a necessity. Walking by faith was not optional. It was a necessity. And so it will become in our lives going forward. It's troubling what's happening, isn't it? It's concerning. It's alarming. I don't know what word you want to use with it. So many have said to me over the last six months, things are changing so rapidly around us. My head is spinning. And yet, in the midst of it all, and I agree with them wholeheartedly, I fully believe that Jesus Christ has raised us up for this moment. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like. As Esther, we have been prepared for a time such as this. But I felt it necessary to take you through the Word of God and once again establish a true expectation of the manner in which the kingdom of heaven will look intermingled with this world. Again, no longer uh, confined to one nation, to one nationality, but there will be the kingdom of heaven intermingled with the kingdom of this world. And of course, ruled by the ruler of this world, Satan himself. There's truly only two kingdoms that occupy and uh, this world, and that is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And once you see it as that, and you understand the kingdom in which you belong to, 
then we must dive into the Word of God, drill down into it, to discover how as a Christian, as Paul stated in Ephesians, we can do all that we can to stand in this moment. And if we feel that the Christianity going forward will center and revolve around us, we are gravely, gravely mistaken. It's not all about us. It's all about Him. It always has been. And we just need to remember that going forward. The kingdom of heaven. So the question I leave you with today is a simple one. Do you understand? Do you understand? God wants you to understand. And by reading His words, He'll expel misconceptions that we have may, may have gained over the course of the life of our Christian faith. And He'll reestablish them with true expectations. He'll bring into focus those things needed that we need to see truly as they truly are. I was just reminded about this just a couple weeks ago. I went to get my eyes checked again. And I don't know what it is about getting my eyes checked. You know, I, 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 sometimes I, I, I just get so, I'm like, nope, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Like the dentist, you know, people get freaked out when they hear the drill. There's something about sitting in front of that machine and them telling you, we're going to puff uh, air into your eye. And you're looking at this thing and it looks like a gun and you're just waiting for a needle to shoot out, you know, and you're just like sitting there. And every single time that I go, it's, I'm like this. <laughs> Did you get it? Please tell me you got it. You know. And, and then, you know, <laughs> it's like, it tells you like a video game for her. She's like, pew, 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 and I'm like this, you know. Do you get it? Do you get it? <laughs> you know, crazy. But then you get in, because I'm just so relieved after I get past that point, that when you get in, then they sit you in the chair and they put this big instrument in front of you and they start switching the lenses. And do you ever know how fast, do you ever realize how fast they go? Is this better? 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 And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay, how about this one? This one, this one, this one. And you're like, you know, and so, oh, I got to tell you a funny thing. Uh, I got to tell you a funny thing. My appointment was on April 1st, and you all know what that day is, right? So I've had this doctor for about 10 years, and she was doing that with the lenses and everything. And I kept saying to her, she was like, all right, now read the letters. I can't see a thing. Oh, no, okay. So she flipped them some more. I can't see a thing. And she's like, really? And then she took the machine and she looked, you know, I can see it perfectly. Why can't you see it? I can't. And it didn't say that up there. I was just doing it because it was April Fool's Day. And I just kept saying that. And then she realized it's April Fool's Day. <laughs> and she charged me double for some reason. But every time I go there, I think about how God's word clarifies our sight. Each verse is a flip of those focus lenses. Each verse shows us ourselves truly as we are. Each verse not only lets us look inwardly properly, but also look outwardly properly. Ever since I graduated to the wonderful world of progressive lenses, 
you know. Everybody thinks I'm always saying yes to see. And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to see you, you know. <laughs> Not that I agree with you. But it just continuously reminds me that God's Word always brings us into focus. It doesn't matter if it's past, present, or future. But it always does the job that it sets out to do. Again, at the end of our study, do you understand? The kingdom of heaven is here and it's moving as strong as it ever has. But it may not resemble the Christianity that we have known for the last 20, 30, 40 years here in America. It may look much different going forward, but that doesn't mean that it's any less effective than it was before. In fact, I can make the argument, I believe significantly, that it's going to be more effective going forward. Rarely does God's church move more powerfully than under the weight of persecution. And as God allows persecution to come, in one form or another, it will refine Christians like they've never been refined before. And we will stand stronger in the power of God's Spirit and the sure confidence of His Word.